Welcome to TechnoViews, a series of podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between techno science, culture, and society in Asia and the world. My name is Jun Zhang. I am an assistant professor at City University of Hong Kong. It is our pleasure to have Dr. Nicholas Stenstov's sister and I here today. Dr. Stenstov's sister and I published his book, Food Safety After Fukushima, Scientific Citizenships and the Politics of Risk by University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Hi, Nicol. Welcome to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. Now seems a good timing to read your book. 2021 is the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster. The Japanese government announced earlier this year that it would discharge the contaminated water, which will be processed and diluted, into the oceans in two years' time. Prime Minister Yoshihida Suga said that the Japanese government would ensure, quote, the safety levels of the water, unquote. Obviously, surrounding countries were not convinced by this statement, which is understandable. To begin with, could you please remind us what the Fukushima disasters is? Yes, uh, so on March 11, 2011, Japan was struck by the Great East Japan earthquake. And this is the the largest earthquake to have ever hit Japan. And uh, it's also the fourth largest earthquake in recorded history. And this earthquake uh, precipitated a a tsunami, a deadly tsunami that uh, hit the coastal areas of the northern part of uh, the island of Honshu in Japan, an area usually known as Tohoku. And uh, the the tsunami in turn... um, sort of affected the the site, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station, and knocked off um, the power and backup power to it. And the operator, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, lost control of of the plant, and some of the reactors in the plant suffered from from meltdowns. And uh, their containment buildings, uh, a couple of them, uh, suffered from hydrogen explosions that then released a radioactive contaminants into, into the surrounding areas. So in Japan, uh, the, this disaster is often also known as a 311 uh, after March 11, and it's often referred to as a triple disaster. So you have the earthquake, the tsunami, and the nuclear accident, and the nuclear accident is one of those three parts of the triple disaster. Japan has a unique history with nuclear power. In what ways does this history influence the way people understand the meltdown of the nuclear reactor after the tsunami? To begin with, uh, of course, Japan uh, suffered uh, during World War II from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there were radiation sufferers in Japan. They are known as the Hibakusha, who had to contend already with harm from radiation. And uh, there were uh, survivors from the bombings uh, in 2011. So uh, as a result, there was some level of familiarity with uh, issues surrounding radiation. And in fact, during my fieldwork, I sometimes saw references made to the experiences of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in particular um, uh, after uh, the, the nuclear bombing in Nagasaki, uh, a Japanese doctor, Dr. Akizuki, had used a diet of brown rice and miso to try to alleviate the suffering of those he was caring for. 
And this bit of, of knowledge resurfaced after the accident in Fukushima, where I met people who promoted the life-affirming properties, especially of miso paste, and uh, as a way of to, trying to counter the harmful effects of radiation. So you have, on the one hand, that legacy. And also, I would note that the, in Japan, especially in the post-war period, there was a history of industrial disasters, and some of the legacies of these industrial disasters had parallels uh, with what happened in Fukushima in 2011. So, for example, there was um, in the uh, 1950s into the 1970s, more or less, uh, uh, what is known as Minamata disease, which is a form of mercury poisoning. And there were attempts sometimes to try to connect the experiences of those who had suffered from uh, Minamata disease and who had fought for their rights with the plight of those who were now contending with the harmful effects of the accident in Fukushima. How bad was the radioactivity contamination right after the disaster, actually? Well, this is a very large industrial disaster. This is, I think, one of the the largest industrial disasters in recent uh, in recent history. Uh, there is a level of classification for nuclear disasters, and uh, the maximum level you can have sort of the most severe kind of accident is a level seven accident. And the Fukushima, the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant is uh, is classified as a level seven accident. Chernobyl being the other one that was classified as a level seven. Um, The because of the accident, there was an exclusion zone that was uh, enacted surrounding the nuclear power station. Um, but I think what is also interesting to note, I mean, of course, this was a very severe accident, but um, it was not as bad as it could have been in some accounts. There, there, there was... There were some worst-case scenarios that actually would have run a lot worse than it would have been, and this is um, the, it was only that if had some of these worst-case scenarios taken place, it would have required the evacuation of a much larger number of people that would have been virtually impossible to to, to accomplish. So, in a sense, it was a very large disaster, but uh, uh, luckily, it was not as bad as it could have been. Um, you mentioned that right after the disaster. The Japanese government changed the um, food safety standard. Um, it increased the total amount of uh, detectable radioactivities in food items. Uh, but you also mentioned that those standards are actually, um, it varies a lot. They vary a lot from countries to countries. So can you um, elaborate a little bit uh, on that for us? Yes, so the Japanese government adopted on uh, March 17, um, 2011, emergency values for the amount of radiation that would be permissible in the food supply. Um, These values were expressed in becquerels per kilogram, and a becquerel is a unit of measurement for the amount of radioactivity that exists in a sample. Now, some of the concern that I encountered while I was in Japan was that the levels that the Japanese government had adopted seem comparatively lax to those of countries that had to deal with the fallout in Chernobyl, from Chernobyl. So, for example, the Ukraine or uh, Belarus had standards of around 37, 40 becquerels per kilogram, and Germany had a standard of 8 becquerels per kilogram for most food items, whereas the Japanese emergency values 
were 500 becos per kilogram for most food items, for general food items. So comparatively, it felt that the Japanese government had adopted a standard that was too lax. And during my field work, for example, I once um, uh, um, visited a, a, a grocer that sold vegetables um, from Fukushima prefecture that had been thoroughly tested and had this big banner at the entrance that stated that at their store they were uh, screening the products to the standards of the Ukraine and not the standards by the Japanese government. In that context, the lack of trust in the government among the general public seems quite understandable. And it seems what emerged was something um, you called the scientific citizenship. And that concept is very intriguing. What do you mean by that? Yes, this is one of the the core concepts that I develop in the book. And I, I developed this concept to try to think about the relationship between citizens and the state and how that can re- relationship can be transformed. Um, and uh, here I borrowed from the work of um, another anthropologist, Aiwa Ong, who has written about how certain people who have uh, desirable skills or, or capital can make themselves attractive to one or more states. And in that sense, their relationship to, state of, to, to, to the state becomes transformed through some of the skills or capital that they have at their disposal. And I borrowed from Aiwa Ong this notion that certain skills can transform the relationship um, between citizens and the state. And in this case, I looked at it in terms of scientific knowledge, that uh, as people learn more about the science of radiation, about what it meant to live in Japan after the nuclear accident, their uh, relationship and their trust in the authorities also was trans- the relationship was transformed. And what I often found is was a lack of trust and the ability of the state to protect them so that they had to go and uh, form networks and find groups, find support uh, networks that would allow them to enact the safety standards that they aspire to so that they could lead uh, healthy and safe lives for themselves, for their families and for others. Now, of course, this kind of idea about the relationship between citizens and the state is not contained to scientific literacy. We could also think, for example, that as citizens are become more informed about the legal system and the law, that might change the relationship to the state and its bureaucracies. But in this case, I was focusing more specifically on what happens as people learn more about the science of radiation and and how that transformed their response to the accident after, uh, how that transformed their the way in which they interpreted what the state was doing after the accident and their own responses to the risks they faced. That's really interesting. Your ethnographic account has a very specific gender dimension. Women, particularly mothers, seems to have taken a leading role in this um, scientific citizenship movement. How so? Yes, uh, this this was something that... uh, happened uh, while I was doing my fieldwork, I very quickly noticed that many of the people I was meeting who were involved in these uh, movements were women, many of them mothers, uh, and many of them mothers of young children. Um, This uh, 
wasn't is in part related to the fact that uh, Japan has a gender division of labor in which mo- women are mostly seen as responsible for procuring food, for shopping for ingredients and cooking at home. So therefore, questions of how are we going to eat after the nuclear accident fell overwhelmingly on women. But it also was many women who took an active role in organizing and forming new associations to protect children from radiation, to meet with like-minded peers and to advance their goals of finding ways of dealing uh, with the the nuclear accident and, and promoting policies that would protect the life of children henceforth. Um, And it was an interesting thing because it also articulated a very interesting critique of the state. Because if women were seen as being primarily responsible for raising future generations, this sort of turned it around on the state and said, well, in order to do this job effectively, in this case, we have to contend with the failure of uh, nuclear policy or the failure of this nuclear power plant and it is upon us now to be able to uphold the rights of children to a healthy future. And there were some groups that articulated this very very clearly, that they were speaking from their position as mothers and as nurturers and protectors of uh, future generations. Well, that's really fascinating. Um, when it comes to scientific literacy, uh, scientific citizenships, or social activism, and in the context of Japan, I think um, women probably would not be the first social actors that will come to my mind. The question of involvement in citizen-led activism is quite interesting. Many of the people that I met during my research considered themselves newcomers to political activity and social movements. Some of them related to me that prior to the accident, they knew that there were activists working on, for example, anti-nuclear issues, but they were not themselves active participants in these movements. But there was something about the accident, its severity, its scope, the risks that emanated from it that prompted them to become involved in these movements or to form new organizations and to become active in these activist spaces. And this is a finding that I think other researchers have also documented about the how the accent uh, catalyzed greater involvement in social movements by people who were not necessarily participating prior. At the same time, there is a a longer history in the post-war period of women-led activism in Japan, particularly in the consumer movement and the environmental movement and the co-op system in Japan. You conducted 27 months fewer between 2011 and 2013, the time right after the triple events took place. How was your experience as a researcher and as an individual who has to eat and drink every day? What motivated you to take on this topic? And there's... Um... I had actually intended to study food safety uh, before the nuclear accident. At the time, I was a graduate student, uh, and I had been preparing a dissertation that would look at questions of food safety and quality in Japan. Um, But shortly before I was due to begin my fieldwork, the events of March 11 transpired, and uh, I was... um, 
I quickly realized that considerations of food safety were changing very quickly because of the nuclear accident. So um, I I was able, with, with my committee's blessing, I, I transformed my dissertation at that moment to start looking at food safety in this case in light of the events uh, of 311. Um, part of this resulted in that I actually had not initially prepared to work on a topic related to radiation. I had been studying questions of food safety, but not I could not have imagined that I would end up studying them in the context of a nuclear disaster. So in many ways, I as I was doing my field work, I was also learning a lot of things about radiation. One of my, one of the main uh, places where I did my field work is I went to a lot of study groups. There were many study groups being held um, in Japan at the time to teach people about radiation and attending these and listening to the people who asked questions at them, listening to how the speakers framed the issues and being able to to chat with people uh, afterwards became one of the main research uh, site uh, became one of my main research techniques and but it also served to educate me about radiation and some of the things that um that i needed to be uh, alert uh, to um um, for myself i i would note that i don't think this is a concern that ever went away um it, it was not a it was not an issue that could be resolved uh but I think developing a set of strategies for how to eat uh, made it more manageable to say, okay, this is the system I will implement. And this is these are the foods that at the time I thought best to avoid, but these are the foods that I feel comfortable purchasing, or these are the places I know I can purchase from with confidence. Um, so turning it into a series of sort of more manageable routines made it uh, easier to handle. And I think that was not just the case for me, but for some of the people I met that um, it constantly checking for radiation every time to, to the full extent could be very uh, time consuming and also uh, a little bit cumbersome. So developing a set of strategies um, about how one goes about procuring food allows it to become a little bit more routinized but the concern always lurked in the background that's quite a fewer experience among all the materials you did not include in the book can you share with us one or two that you would like to include in the book but could not for various reasons yeah, this is a great question, and I, I've been thinking about this. So I, I now, I've been teaching a course on ethnographic methods at uh, my university, and uh, sometimes I, I tell students that actually we collect way more data than what can eventually make it into the book, and there's a whole process of being able to select uh, sort of how to build that uh, narrative out of that body of data. Um, one of the things that I did not address in the book much was uh, the role of databases. And that's something that I've been thinking about more recently, which is uh, how it is that, um, what was the purpose uh, not the purpose, how do these databases operate that aggregate test results? And in what ways can a body of data serve to reassure concerned consumers about the safety of products. Can numbers in of, in of themselves be uh, 
an effective strategy to reassure someone that yes you can consume these products confidently you know so that's one thing that i did not include much in the book and that i i'm trying to think about more um nowadays now the other thing is that an a topic like the the accident at the fukushima daiichi nuclear power plant is is tremendous there were so many facets uh, to study about it and in my case i focus more specifically on the question of food safety but it is a a a topic that actually cannot be adequate cannot be comprehensively documented by a single researcher Uh, so there are other researchers who have written excellent accounts of topics that i did not address in my own research and um, i think uh, more specifically in regards to food and citizen science i can think of for example the the work of ayahira takimura yasuhito abe or maxim poleri who have published on similar themes to what i was looking at but they have their own takes and i i i think readers who are interested in these issues would really uh sort of uh, would really benefit in their understanding of the account by reading uh, all these works side by side to be able to see how we different authors approach the issue. The other thing is, uh, as you noted earlier, I conducted the bulk of my field work from 2011 to 2013. And a disaster is not a static event. It unfolds over time. So by virtue of when I did my research, I, I was able to gather data and observe a specific window of time about the about this accident. But but this is by no means uh, an event that is over. Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, that there was the recent announcement that water would be uh, released into the ocean or in the coming years, uh, contaminated water. So it, it this goes to show that the accident is ongoing. Uh, and so there are newer works coming out recently. There's new, uh, there are researchers doing field work right now whose work will sort of build on to uh, providing a longitudinal perspective on some of these issues. It's very interesting to read your book with the pandemic around us. For example, how dangerous is the coronavirus? What can we know about it? Should we wear a mask? Should we believe what our government WHO or the medical doctors told us about the virus? Should we trust the vaccine issues that you discuss in relation to food safety against the background of radioactivity contamination in your book? Issues such as risk, trust of the government and scientific authority are all quite relatable to our current situation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your findings on these topics? Or how these findings may help us or yourself understand what all of us are facing at the moment? This is an excellent question. And I, I, I wondered myself also about the parallels between some of the things that I've, I, I found it, uh, during my research about the nuclear accident and the current COVID-19 pandemic. One interesting parallel, I think, is the invisibility. Um, radiation has no clues that can be ascertained with uh, the human senses. So radiation doesn't have a, you cannot see it, uh, it has no smell, you cannot touch it. So we we have to rely on um, 
on detectors to be able to reveal how much of it is around us. And this makes it very difficult to know when you are in the presence of higher levels of radiation, when you're in the presence of a product that may harbor some radiation within it. And I think there's an interesting parallel here to um, the fact that some people can be asymptomatic with COVID-19 but still be spreading um, the, the virus and that we cannot see the virus we sometimes don't know we we sometimes don't know that it's we're in the presence of the virus and this can be uh the, it can be debilitating to be constantly worried about whether we're in the presence of invisible danger or not um eventually we may develop higher tolerance to it but i i remember at the beginning of the covid-19 crisis um, the COVID-19 pandemic, how jumpy I was at the supermarket whenever I got too close to someone else uh, because of that invisible nature of the threat. Um, there's, I think, something interesting also, I mean, I live in the United States and there's something to be said about um, the sort of certainty and uncertainty, especially on the part of government, um, that with the COVID-19 pandemic or with other sort of like these kinds of events, sometimes knowledge is not absolute. There's no, sometimes there's a level of ambiguity or uncertainty about what the effects of these things will be. And I think there's a lesson in not trying to minimize the potential risk or uh, to try to appear to be in control. And I think, if, especially, uh, I can think of like my, my experience here in the United States. Initially, the Trump administration was very, um, came out, came down very strong on the side that there's nothing to be, fear, to be feared from the COVID-19 pandemic. This is contained, nothing will happen. And then as those promises fell, also the, the, the ability of, of citizens to trust uh, experts and the state in their abilities to guide us through the crisis also dropped. Um, so I think there, there's something important to be able to acknowledge that there's limits sometimes to our understanding about the effects of these events and that there are uncertainties. There are things that we do not the we do not the answers to them yet. And la lastly, the there's um there was a very interesting paper published about the events of three eleven, uh, by um, uh, David Slater, Love Kinsram, and um, and Nishimura, uh, Keiko Nishimura, uh, about the role of um, social media after the three eleven accident. One of the things that they point out in that paper is that there is a difference between events, disasters that were experienced through mostly through television or printed media and the era of social media, where uh, printed media or TV is primarily a unidirectional medium that it speaks to us. Uh, but social media has this interesting ability to be able to be recirculated and be uncommented upon. And this allows more voices to join the discussion. But the it can also model the discussion at, at times because of the volume of of voices, uh, the sheer volume of opinions circulating, and fewer filters. And this is something that I sometimes came across uh, during my fieldwork in Japan. That there were so many people offering opinions about um, the the risks that would emanate from the accident that it would it was sometimes difficult to ascertain 
which information to to follow uh, in that sort of like like large body of information that was circulating. And the other thing that I think comes from the work that's actually very apropos the um, the COVID nineteen pandemic is that in in these cases social media is not just a reflection or a secondary space where the issues about the event or the pandemic or the disaster are discussed. But in fact, for many people, their experience and understanding of what's happening is formed through engagement in social media so that the experience online doesn't exist somewhere else, but it's actually a constitutive element of what it means to have lived through some of these events and how an understanding of them comes about. So I am. Um, I mean, so I, I've gone on a little bit long, but I think this is an excellent question on this uh, these parallels between COVID nineteen and, and what we saw in Japan after the nuclear accident, in that that there are these invisible dangers, uh, and there's also like the the loss of trust in in, in the role of the state, and uh, the this question of how social media becomes a constitutive element of the experience. Thank you very much, Nicole, for sharing with us your research today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You are listening to Dr. Nicholas Stanstov Cisterna talking about his book, Food Safety After Fukushima, Scientific Citizenships and the Politics of Risk, published by University of Hawaii Press 2019. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 